Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Support journalism. I don't know. There's a lot of things you could support. Maybe you should support journalism. I think if you use journalism, it's a good idea to support journalism. And right now you're using this podcast so you can support us and get an ad-free feed of CanadaLand twice a week. All you got to do is click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. Five bucks Canadian a month. Support journalism. Mark, why don't you tell me then the, this significant shift that's about to happen in the WE organization? Yes. Uh, we're going to be announcing today that we're winding down WE Charity here in Canada. We started the organization back in 1995 when we were kids in Thornhill in our parents' basements. And uh, this is our 25th anniversary as an organization. Uh, so this is an incredibly sad day. Uh, for us as an organization, but an important one as well in terms of what we hope to achieve with the organizational resources for the future. Which will be what? We are going to be creating an endowment, an endowment to help ensure that some of our most important projects can be protected. So maybe you heard, We Charity is finished. We found out about it and we broke the news after we recorded the Shortcuts episode that you're about to hear. It was after my co-host Carl Dockstadter left. You're not going to hear me and Carl chewing over this new development or the CTV interview or the rest of the media's handling of it. Maybe we'll get to that next week on the next Shortcuts. What I want to say for now, the thing that I think is most important to note right now in the wake of this revelation 
is that it just it just doesn't wash. It doesn't make sense. The reasons given for closing We Charity, pandemic politics, the political freight train kept getting mentioned. We know that We Charity's troubles started before that. And we also know, because Mark Bloomberg, the charity lawyer who was on this show, he said, you know, these guys have $50 million in real estate. They could have run this thing for the next 200 years. So their Canadian charity operation, inspiring kids and all of their network and infrastructure, they could have resigned and rebranded. And if that stuff was beneficial, if it worked before, it could work again. They have assets, they could keep it going. And they chose not to. They chose to end it. And I think we have to ask why. Why did they back out of the volunteer grant program in the first place? It's because everybody started asking questions. And shutting down We Charity and giving Lisa Laflamme, CTV, their media partner, CTV, a big interview, had a sense of finality to it. This is the end. You don't have to ask any more questions. We're going away. We're resigning. But this is not the end. Because We Charity is just one entity. What's going to happen to Me to We Social Enterprises, We 365 GP, We 365 Holdings, Me to We Trips, Me to We Shop, Me to We Foundation, Me to We Asset Holdings, We Charity Foundation, Wellbeing Foundation, 2569144 Ontario, Me to We Consumables. That's just the Canadian North American stuff. There's stuff all around the world. They are not done. They're not shutting it all down. And the questions have to continue. The fact that they are putting all of the focus now onto their international development efforts and salvaging those, and specifically those in Kenya, is highly notable to me. And I think that's where I'm going to leave this for now. Hey, Carl Dockstadter, co-host of One Dish, One Mic radio show and podcast, co-recipient of this year's Canadian Journalism Foundation CBC Indigenous Fellowship, newly criminalized reporter. Welcome. Thank you for that uh, uh, very contrasting introduction. <laughs> Carl, you were arrested and charged last week in connection with your reporting on 1492 Landback Lane. Good work. We're going to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a tough week. Yeah. It is also back to school season with a twist. This year, paralyzing dread is on the curriculum. Glad to have you with me. Glad to be here. Listen, this episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Bill Beatty, Molly K. Gregus, Nadia, Matthew Lee, Rose Clancy, Megan Gates, Laura McDonald, and Alyssa Byers Heinlein. I'm Alyssa Byers Heinlein, and I'm a midwife in Kingston, Ontario. I support Canada Land because I'm currently on maternity leave and I need to engage my brain beyond changing diapers and figuring out nap times. I also need something to listen to that's not Baby Shark. Jesse Brown, do 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 do. Jesse Brown, do 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 do. Well, the indigenous occupation of a uh, controversial uh, development in Caledonia, just south of Hamilton, continues. Mackenzie Meadows 
is what it's known as. Uh, the OPP have stepped up enforcement of an injunction that was put in place. Uh, they made seven arrests early last week, including Indigenous journal Carl Dockstetter. dispute protest in Caledonia is now in its 49th day, and the number of people charged in connection to the dispute is growing. Carl Dockstetter is an Indigenous journalist. He spent six days camping at Mackenzie Meadows for a story he's been working on about the ongoing Caledonia land dispute protest. Carl, they're talking about you. That was your uh, your terrible no good a week last week. Can you give us the nutshell version of what happened? Yeah, one dish one Mike uh, found ourselves being the primary media outlet that's been covering 1492 Land Back Lane. So I took it upon myself to to really do an in-depth study of what was happening at 1492 Land Back Lane. And I, I embedded myself with the camp itself and spent a week documenting and chronicling everything that was happening without incident. I, I had a plan in case I was confronted by the police. I did have an interaction with two police officers, two OPP officers during my time covering stories around the camp. But I was surprised to find that the Tuesday afterwards I was contacted by the police and they were letting me know that they were intending to charge me with mischief and with failure to comply with the court order. What do you mean you had an interaction? So I went and I did a story, a brief video story on how the Haldeman Community Center had had been converted to an ad hoc police center. I just thought that visually it was something peculiar that a community center had like 20 cop cars parked in front of it and, and had been turned into this like police headquarters. So I was chronicling that when I was approached by two officers who who basically asked me what I was doing. I handed them a business card. I handed them the information for the radio station that, that I work with, 610 CKTB. And they they said that that was fine. They let me continue. They only observed me making the rest of the video. And then and then I went on my business. So that, that I mean, if they didn't know beforehand, which they probably did, they certainly knew after that, that you are press and, you know, you've got your show with Bell, with Bell Media and you've done reporting on this uh, for us. And they knew about that and they didn't hassle you until they did. So... What changed? As far as you know, how did you go from being treated as a reporter who was given space to cover the story by the cops to being treated as just another protester that they're going to arrest for violating the injunction? Yeah, it's it's difficult for me to know. Like like I have to admit, anytime I get approached by the by the police, as I've talked about with Canada Land before, just as an indigenous man, I I have an inherent fear that's built in because I've seen police interactions go wrong when it comes to indigenous people. So a- after that interaction, I exhaled. I'm like, okay, good. I'm you know I'm doing things carefully. I told them I was I was a member of the media. Told them that I was documenting everything. Everything was fine. So for the rest of the week, I thought, okay, you know, again, I I sort of know where this line is now, and and I've talked to the police, and I continued to to cover the story, which which included immersing myself in the experience. And then still, when I got the charges, I, I don't know if there's something that, that they thought that I did that wasn't journalism, but but I was there getting a story that week. Well, they gave us a hint. They haven't explained why. They said that they're going to, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you in time, but they gave a hint in their statement to the media about this. They said, the Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP, is committed to the freedom of the press. That's nice. And respects the important role the media has in the community. We value and strive to have collaborative relationships with our media partners. I'm going to return to that part. But here's the relevant part to what we're talking about right now. The OPP says engaging in activities outside of their reporting purpose could subject media personnel to charges in relation to violation of a court order and other applicable offenses. That was their statement when asked why you got arrested. So there is some reference here to activities outside of reporting purposes. Now, when you were on Canada Land talking about 1492 Land Back Lane, we also talked about how you 
sang uh, with the protesters who were singing. And I know that the last thing you filed as a journalist before your arrest, as I understand it, is a video where you talk about playing lacrosse with the protesters there. Are those the activities you think that they're going to say he wasn't a reporter, he was a protester because he was he was singing along with them? Maybe they'll say you were chanting along with them. I don't know about lacrosse as an act of civil disobedience, but is that what we're going to hear from them eventually? I mean, I, I studied that line and what, what I was told. I mean, I talked to a lot of people before I went in that week in, in particular, really about where the line stops and starts and, and about making sure to maintain my objectivity. So I never I never picked up a brick. I never picked up a rock. I never picked up a magic marker and put it to a piece of Bristol board. Like there are just certain things that, that I knew that I that I couldn't do that week while I was chronicling things. But, but I was, again, I was embedded. I mean, I was trying to do an immersive story. So I was effectively a member of the camp. So was it, was it me playing the lacrosse game was it I mean I'm not technically a journalism when I lay my pillow down in my tent at nighttime either so is that the second my head hits the pillow is is that the line that the OPP says okay he's not documenting anymore let's go in and get him I mean it's how are they even qualified to make that determination you know we were having a conversation here about that and uh, one thing that my colleague Andrea Schmidt said is like in many assignments around the world she will absolutely try to befriend the people she's covering, get to know them, embed with them. Often because she's an outsider who's like in in a foreign country, she needs to very quickly establish a rapport. But because she's white, often covering people who are not, any authorities watching can see, okay, that's a reporter and there's a camera behind her. And this happens in sort of a ad hoc kind of a negotiated protocol. This is just sort of how it's okay. We don't fuck with the press. And she may enjoy a privilege that you as an indigenous man might not, as you have similar interactions. But it's also true that, like, we're having this larger debate about whether objectivity is even possible. And you and I had previously discussed, like, I think it's okay for people to know that you are, in general, ideological terms, supportive of the case. But you're not there as an active activist. You're there to chronicle it. As a publisher who commissioned you to do journalism on this... You have our absolute support, and I was glad to see a lot of the journalistic community come out. Can you talk a little bit about who has come to your defense and is standing by you as a journalist who is absolutely within your rights to be reporting what happened and doing, frankly, a better job of it than anybody else in the mainstream media because you were so close to what was happening? Well, thank you for that. And I, I want to thank Belvedia first, which actually gave One Dish, One Mike the platform. They found us as a podcast and, and they said that you're telling a perspective that has not been told historically that well. And they've given us a lot of creative license. There's no piece of paper that comes down from above saying this is what you're going to talk about on Sundays. Sean Vanderclis, my co-host from Curve Lake and myself, we we plan our shows. So when we pick 1492 Landback Lane as a story, we definitely picked it from from an Indigenous storytelling point in terms of merit. I've also gotten support from the Canadian Association of, of Journalism, Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. I've gotten uh, supportive comments from the Canadian Civil Liberties Union. There have been just a lot of reporters, a lot of media people that have been very consistent in saying that it, it shouldn't be an outside body that gets to determine what is and isn't reporting, what is and isn't journalism. This is there, even though journalism isn't a heavily credentialed industry, I think that there, there's an understanding that there is a certain code and it's not up to the police what that code is. Yeah, especially when their understanding of journalism is as fucked up as it is. I mean, the other part of that police statement, we value and strive to have collaborative relationships with our media partners. 
dude, I'm not a partner of the cops when, when I do journalism. Like, we're not your media partners and we're not collaborators. We're not some extension of law enforcement. Like, that is just such a tone deaf and ignorant thing to say. Like, our job is to, is to hold the police accountable. The idea that, like, oh, no, they're our friends. We collaborate with them all the time. I mean, I'm sure that does happen. It shouldn't happen. There is an interesting and complicated debate about who can claim reporter status at events like this. It's raging right now, and it is getting highly politicized. You know, in Portland, both sides of the conflict on the streets have their phones out and cameras out, and they're documenting each other, and they're making propaganda against the other side. Now, they're getting footage that, like, you know, mainstream media is not getting because they're actually involved in conflict on the streets and sometimes armed conflict on the streets. Should any of them do anything that results in arrest, and a lot of them are doing things that should result in arrest, for them to say, no, no, I, I was there as a reporter. That's it's not like a magic get out of consequence free card, but that's a very different circumstance than what happened to you. I'm sure in your defense, your lawyers are going to bring up the Justin Brake case, which provided some case history. There is a precedent where we have a ruling from a judge saying, okay, I'm more comfortable with the judge making this determination than the cops. I've assessed Justin Brake's role in covering this land protector case. And he was not a protester. He was a reporter. They'll be judging you by that same criteria, right? But the truth is, we don't have much beyond that judge's ruling. You know, in Canadian law, there isn't really like, oh, trespassing is a thing and injunctions have to be obeyed unless you're a reporter. We have charter rights to free expression, but there's no special magic wand that you wave. Like traditionally, this has been the cops understanding that it's a bad look to lock up and handcuff reporters. And so they back the fuck off. And now that it's unclear or less clear to them who the reporter is, that social contract that we have with the cops is fragile. So when they do make a move on us and they're making more moves on us than they've ever made before, we all have to stand united and say, back the fuck off. I just want to seize on, on a point that you've mentioned twice now, though, and that the, the key difference with, say, me reporting the story and you reporting the story is that I also physically look like the protesters. And yeah. if that ever entered into the police's thought at any point in this whole process, then then this, I think, needs to be thrown out right away. And and I can't rule it out because Sean and I have been saying it since the day we've been covering it, that you, you can't visually differentiate Sean and I from the people that are reclaiming the land in the first place. And, I'm scared that that's what it came down to. Of course, that's what it came down to. If it was me there, I wouldn't have been arrested. They saw you and they saw they saw that you were you looked in in every way to them as the other protesters. And they're like, ah, we're not going to treat this guy like a reporter. And it was just some cop making that call. Fuck that. Two main takeaways here. One is I think they'll probably throw away the charges. I hope they will. If they go further than that, I think you will be exonerated. But anything's possible. Whatever happens, convicted, exonerated, charges uh, thrown out. They've already won. They have already succeeded in criminalizing your reporting because one of the conditions of your arrest is you can't go back there. You can't talk to the people involved. So the cops have effectively stopped a reporter, the reporter who was doing the best job of covering the story, the reporter who was closest to the story. And the last thing I want to say is there has been more press coverage of your arrest than there has been of the conflict itself. You got wide coverage, CBC, Globe and Mail, uh, news sources, mainstream. I think it is a badge of honor for a reporter to be arrested for doing their fucking job. Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you for that. And and I mean, I'm, I'm hungry to get this story out, but honestly, this isn't, this isn't the way I wanted this to happen. I mean, I, I would give back uh, a lot of the publicity for me personally, if, if I could have these charges withdrawn, this is, this is not what I was hoping for at all. When I spent the week, I wanted the, the story to get out because of good storytelling. 
but uh, the word's out now. So if their effort was to silence me, then yeah, it definitely had the opposite effect because more eyes are on this story than ever before. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. Carl, uh, you've been on the the Monday show a couple of times with Sean, but you have never been on Shortcuts until today. On this show, we duly note things. That's something that we do here. I just want to duly note that The Current, the CBC show The Current, has been kind of fucked up this summer. I can't claim to have listened to it every day. I can't give a comprehensive uh, critical analysis of the current, but there's a couple of things uh, over, you know, they're, they're gearing up for Matt Galloway. He's going to, like, he's been hosting it, but now I think it's like, no, this is the real debut has begun now. But over the summer, there was this one segment that even Simon Haupt uh, of the Globe and Mail, he had to call it an appalling piece of journalistic malpractice, which from Simon is pretty strong, but I think it's merited. After the Republican National Convention, They had on a panel that was completely comprised of Republican conservative analysts and pundits and, you know, American Trumpist Republican media commentators are slick. And the three of them just steamrolled the host, Catherine Cullen. In terms of the message itself, what did you think of it? He laid out a pretty good case that there have been accomplishments that have not been fully appreciated during his administration. His defense on COVID was mixed. Uh, Clearly, some mistakes were made early on. He's not going to acknowledge those. On the other hand, uh, it is also clear that countries that went to complete lockdown have failed, Uh, whether it's Australia, whether it's New Zealand, whether it's any country that tried a complete lockdown. That failed and failed uh, miserably. Worse than the the United States, given the death toll. Well, well, first of all, first of all, each 
country has a different set of circumstances Mm -hmm. that must be looked at that way. Mm -hmm. In addition, the European version of the COVID-19, which hit us, was far worse than the Asian version. So to make cross-country comparisons, you have to be very, very careful, and I think you know that. You know, the kind of contrast he was trying to draw last night, the, the law and order message, that he needs that to be the focal point rather than this being a referendum on his performance on COVID-19. Do you think that that is a fair assessment? Uh, no, okay. I think that the president um, wants to highlight to the American people all and one all of the successes that have come under his administration for the past four years. Because many times in the mainstream media, I would say 90% of the time in the mainstream media, it's not reported, or if it is reported, uh, it is uh, misconstrued and, 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 and bent towards the negative. So it was important to do that. The second thing it was important to do is for him to highlight the true reality of a Biden administration. It, it is not a, a, a falsehood or a fictitious uh, something that we just came up like in a novel it, to talk about the fact that Joe Biden is going to raise taxes, that they support defunding the police and well, the Green he, New Joe Deal. Joe Biden does not and support the defunding the police. Of all of the things that would happen by doing that on the backdrop of the widow of, of Officer Dorn speaking. And it was 17 uh, fucking minutes of pro-Trump and just filled with, with like factual inaccuracies that the host was just like, um, uh, uh, Joe Biden wants to defund the police. It was just asserted. Like she tried to push back. It, no, it, she was no match for these three soundbite machines. And what the hell was this? What was the point of the segment? And then there was another thing that was brought to my attention uh, as Duncan McHugh was guest hosting. And he's got Joe Sacco, who's this fantastic cartoonist who's been doing journalism in the form of comics for years and years. And uh, I first was aware of Joe Sacco when he did a, a book called Palestine. He's since done a book about the oil sands and the Dene. And, and you know, he was on talking about that with Duncan McHugh. And Duncan McHugh, just in passing, says, uh, what does he say? He says, so often when we talk about indigenous communities and, and uh, economic de- resource extraction, uh, it's, it's through the lens of economic development. But, but in, in so much of your work, uh, context is key, and, and, and whether it's Palestine or whether it's Bosnia. To me, it is pretty apolitical to refer to the uh, Palestinian territories as Palestine. I don't see that as taking a position, but even so... When you're talking to Joe Sacco and you're talking about Joe Sacco's work, which was explicitly what Duncan McHugh said, but so much of your work, context is key, whether it's Palestine, he could have been talking about the title of his book, Palestine. No, CBC gets Duncan McHugh to apologize. He's got to go on the air and apologize. And he says, before we get to the podcast, I've got a correction to make. Yesterday in my interview with Joe Sacco, I referred to the Palestinian territories as Palestine. We apologize. All it does is exacerbate the idea that there is some Zionist control of the media that is like so micromanaging everything that the CBC says that it actually can force an apology. They have to grovel after. I mean, something so innocuous and harmless is anyhow. Those are two things I did not like on The Current this summer and that they should feel bad about. Duly noted. What do you have to duly note, Carl? 
I really want to duly note the fact that the Iroquois national lacrosse team was on the verge of being a de facto disqualified from the Olympics when the sovereignty of the Haudenosaunee people, which seems to be a theme, was was not acknowledged by some of the governing bodies of, of lacrosse. World lacrosse was very sympathetic to the Iroquois nationals on competitive merit, even though they draw from a base of, of tens of thousands of players against countries that can draw from millions of players. They, they routinely place in the top five. Last year, they were the third best lacrosse team in the world and and they were going to be completed from the world games that were going to happen in 2021 in Birmingham, Alabama and that would have had the effect of excluding them from the Olympics. What I would like to point out is that the longtime allies of the Iroquois Nationals or of the of indigenous people all across Turtle Island, the Irish, actually willingly backed out of the tournament and World Lacrosse worked with the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Iroquois Nationals and now the Nationals will get to establish whether they play on the world stage on merit and how good they are at lacrosse not on international politics. It's arguable that whatever the sport is, the sovereignty should be recognized. But there is something specific about lacrosse in this context, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so the the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee are we were the founders of lacrosse. This is this is considered to be a game that that we brought to the world stage. It's actually the third highest recruited sport now for men's sports in the United States. So after football and basketball, lacrosse players are being recruited at the highest level and for women's sports, uh, lacrosse is is the highest and most recruited sport now in American colleges. So it, it's very popular, but yeah, it's it's founded by the Haudenosaunee people themselves. Who, who there was an attempt to exclude them from playing it. Yeah, they, they were an eyelash away from not playing in Birmingham, and a lot of things still have to fall in place for them to be eligible should lacrosse be included as an Olympic sport in Los Angeles in 2028. Duly noted. One last one, actually. I want to duly note this, and it's, it's not like uh, something that um, didn't get a lot of attention. I think a lot of people were sharing this uh, for good reason. But you know what? In case anybody missed it, the Toronto Star's Jennifer Yang wrote a really heartbreaking and really gutting story about a teenager named Lemo Muhammad, whose uh, mom died from COVID-19. This kid who seems lovely, an autistic kid trying to grapple with just an absolutely horrific uh, tragedy. I don't know, some, something about this story, I think, connected with people. And we're sadly getting to a place where the aftermath of this is affecting people and it's affecting some communities more than others. And this was just a very human story and it was really well told. And I uh, haven't been able to stop thinking about it, actually. But uh, people should check out Jennifer Yang and the Toronto Star and read the story about Lamo. Duly noted. Teachers and parents in the province are already voicing their concerns about the possibility of going back. Those case numbers and the rising count of them is certainly concerning, according to Ontario's education minister, because uh, epidemiologists have said that if there's more COVID-19 in the community, there's a higher risk of it entering Ontario's school system. Plenty of freedom for smaller school boards, less affected by the pandemic, to manage the risk. Larger boards feel they may not be able to live up to the safest possible version of reopening. Everyone was stressed the unknown of everything lots of tears lots of anxiety for parents the return to school is a rock and a hard place terrified of the thought of what if my kids get sick what if i get sick does this mean that my kids can't see their grandparents now carl it's back to school time have you heard i think i've heard a little bit about that i mean i get it i get it like it's like that's being the looming threat uh, ever since lockdown of what the hell's going to happen, but never has something been covered so exhaustively with such, with such little information to impart. I mean, listen to this. Welcome to the start of the school year. 
it's going to be rocky, says the star. Also, Ontario teachers worried. Uh, back to school puts another log on a really scary fire. Thank you, star. I'm a parent, a teacher, and I'm terrified. <laughs> okay. Uh, but here's why I choose to be an optimist about going back to school. Good luck. Convince. Okay. A tough choice. Mixed feelings as parents and teachers prepare for return to school, says CTV. Parents extremely worried about schools reopening safely. Also CTV. There is just no way to do this, says uh, a, a global news headline. People are worried. Ontario's rising COVID-19 case count is concerning, says the education minister, Stephen Lecce. Do you think people are worried? I, I only wish that the media could like go out there and report on whether or not this is a point of concern. <laughs> You're a dad. I'm a dad. It's not news that we're worried. Yeah, it's it's been made clear that, that a lot of people are, are worried. I definitely feel the emotion that people people are going through. And I know a lot about the back-to-school opening plan, not just because of my own kids, but because it, it seems like everywhere you turn, there's plenty of information available about the back-to-school reopening and especially how people feel about it. I mean, have you had one conversation with another parent that doesn't like open with, so fuck, what are you doing? Every every conversation I've had has been the same. Actually, the, the kids are dying to go back. And, yeah. and so, you know, I mean, I don't want my kids to be the test case. They're going to avoid like uh, my wife's parents for a while who are caring for our elderly uh, great grandmother, for example. Like we're going to take extra precautions. But and of course, we're a little worried, but I'm not like I don't have a knot in my stomach that's, you know, so huge that I can't sleep at night. Because of the local back to school opening plan for my daughters. I mean, you, that's nice that you say your kids aren't going to be the test case, but all of our kids are in the science experiment. I mean, it doesn't even matter which way you go with it. Like, I, I get it, media. Like, we are conducting a massive science experiment with our kids' health, and the variables are like, it's anyone's guess. You can hold your kids back, you can put them in a pod, you can wait a couple of weeks, but then you're just playing with other factors, right? Like if you wanted to like mitigate your risk down to zero, okay, well now your kid's some weird shut-in who doesn't get to socialize or learn anything. And now like, what, so now you've upped your risk level of them having some sort of emotional anxiety syndrome or uh, what, what are the impacts of uh, on their education? I guess, I guess you could go to some community that has like a zero caseload, but it's hard for me to imagine how do you reverse engineer what the right thing to do is? We do know what's going to happen. There will be a spike. There will be flare-ups. There will be outbreaks. We know that for sure. But like, what are you going to do? The kids need to go back. And yeah. I'm struggling to like say something that sounds conclusive as I make my point that there is no conclusion that could be made right now. So we're just spinning our wheels and the endless conversations just sort of land nowhere. And then we're just going to kind of roll the dice. And, and I think that was the thing. There, there was probably an opportunity to stop this a few weeks ago to, to really stop the back to school opening plan. But they're going for it. You know, I, I have primary information. Actually, my wife is the lunchroom supervisor at our local school. And what she's telling me is that the kids are actually the best people to see this through. Because even though uh, it was just kindergartens that went back in our specific district yesterday, the kindergartners, they're, they're wearing their masks. They're following the rules. They're washing their hands. There are a lot of things that maybe we should follow the lead of the, the kids a little bit. And maybe that should be the story. Yeah, we've been scaring the living shit out of them for six months. I'm, I'm sure they're wearing their masks. Oh, they're not going to wear No, they're wearing their masks. I don't know. Like, you know, the Globe had a good piece on, you know, like equity issues. Like, here's here's some of the weird stuff about this. Like, uh, you know, as I've been considering it in kind of a GTA context, there are neighborhoods in Toronto that have like 30 cases 
total throughout the entire pandemic, there have been like 30 to 40 cases in some neighborhoods. On the other end of the spectrum, there are catchments over 500 cases. So when we're having like the conversation over the summer has been like, oh, can we get class sizes lowered? If you live in a neighborhood that's got like between 30 and 50 cases like mine, you have no fucking right to have your class size diminished, right? Like if you're actually talking about the percentage of risk, there are neighborhoods in Toronto where if you take two classes of like 30 kids per class, chances are statistically, and this is all about statistics, one of those classes, all those kids are going to be exposed to, you know, has a kid who has been exposed to coronavirus. And then you go into a more affluent neighborhood and it's going to take 20 classes of 27 kids before you get to one that on average, somebody has been exposed to coronavirus. Like it is an equity issue up and down, but even in the media's attempts to deal with that, it's interesting. Like the piece in the globe was really focused on like, well, it's a real problem if um, affluent parents take their kids out of school and put them in private learning pods as if that doesn't have risk level. And the argument is that one of the sources quoted said was, well, first of all, there's no savings to the public school system because the funding is based on a per kid basis. So you take a kid out, that's just less funding, but we're also losing the advocacy of these affluent kids, parents who are better at advocating or are louder or, or, you know, they seem to get more results. And that was interesting because I've just been listening to this uh, Nice White Parents series, which kind of makes the opposite argument that like these very loud um, gentrifying parents step into public systems and suck up all the oxygen and advocate loudly for programs that only benefit their kids. And we seem to not be able to reach consensus as to whether or not we want nice white parents making a big fuss in PTA meetings and for fundraising or whether it's a huge loss when we lose them to private pods. But then the rub is, if you'll allow me to go on, that the affluent parents are not taking their kids out because the affluent parents have a lot lower risk in those schools. You know who's taking their kids out? And this is something that I did learn from reading the coverage in The Star is that in hotspot neighborhoods, in those neighborhoods where they've got more than 500 cases, those parents quite rationally, and they're the parents in, you know, who often are least equipped to handle, they, they, they need the daycare uh, that the schools provide, but they're not going to send their kids to a school that has that high, those schools, and they're trying to deal with it with the class sizes in, in some of those really hotspot schools, but those schools really are the most exposed and those parents are responsible, loving parents like any others. And, and it's those schools who are divesting from the public school system because those schools are dangerous. That's a good term that you're using is is divesting. And I guess that, you know, we, we live in close to the urban core of Niagara Falls. So by virtue of the fact that the income levels are lower and that the concentration of, of racialized people is higher in the neighborhood that I live in, we're exposed to higher risk. But we made this collective decision when we first sent our kids to public school. First off, that's all we can afford. So it's not like I have, you know, unlimited money to make a lot of choices anyways. But but we we decided that we were going to go down with the ship, as it were. And that's the real conversation that we're having. It's like this whole question about, did we learn nothing from COVID? Like we learned all of this stuff about, about how COVID has been divided around lines of race, around lines of class, around, I mean, the, the great series that Archie Mann did through comments, like the whole pandemic series, basically talked about where that dividing line was down. But how many people mm -hmm. listen to that and then are making informed decisions based on that? We're, we're not. We're pretending that this, this plan is equitable, but the 
fact of the matter is that parents that have more resources are better equipped to put their kids in a position where they're less likely to to get COVID. And so that has the de facto result of exposing kids, again, in, in urban intense areas like where I live or in heavily racialized neighborhoods to, to potentially have more risk to COVID. And, and it's not fair. So we if we can't do anything about this right now, we should at least commit to, to analyze it and at least read the analysis about this as opposed to the you know shock and awe of, oh my God, it's going to be a disaster and a catastrophe and the sort of more sensational stories that have come out. Yeah, I think there is a benefit to the actual like equity statistical analysis because there's, frankly, there are dozens of things that are not equitable about our public school system that we just never really cared about before. But because we're all facing the exact same threat, we can actually look at this as a mathematical equation and be like, wow, my kid goes to public school, your kid goes to public school, but the likelihood that my kid is going to encounter uh, somebody who has been exposed to coronavirus is way lower than yours because of baked in systemic inequities in the system. We're both in the same public school system. We both pay our taxes. We both theoretically should be receiving the same returns back from the system, but it's wildly different. And I don't know what the answer to that is, because if you actually were trying to account for that and and try to level out the exposure risk level, you would have some neighborhoods with five kids in a class and then other neighborhoods with 60 kids in a class. It would require that much of a disparity to have the equivalent level of potential COVID risk. And that ain't going to happen. We're not going to have the five and 60, you know, but I don't know. At least we're talking about this stuff. If we would have had the data in the first place, though, I mean, we again, going back to the early COVID days when the premier goes on TV and, and literally says, quote, I don't believe in race based data, end quote. I mean, that that's problematic, right? Like we we should at the very least, if we can't do better, we should learn how to be better in the future. So so that's what I would like to see is as many eyes on this as possible. And really studying that that I, I acknowledge my kids are going to school starting tomorrow. Right. And I acknowledge that I'm exposing them to some risk, but I'm going to be watching carefully to do everything I can to, to mitigate that risk. And I would just hope that people with more power and authority than me are doing the same thing. Yeah. It's just, it's just fucking terrifying. It's off to school kids. We'll get some good data out of this either way. We, we have two rooms at our school. And so if one kid shows symptoms, they go into one room. If a second kid shows symptoms, they go into the second room. What if three kids show symptoms? Right? Impossible. <laughs> Is it Never like a zombie apocalypse? A zombie apocalypse situation? You know, do we expose the other kid? Where do we put these kids? We lock them in a closet. Like, you know, there, there are limits to what can be done. And away we go. Carl, that is Canada Land Shortcuts. Uh, thank you for joining me for it. Anybody can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Doxtader, K-A-R-L-D-O-C-K-S-T-A-D-E-R. You can also find us on all things One Dish, One Mic on Twitter, on Instagram, on, on all the socials. And of course, you can listen to us on AM610 CKTV, The Voice of Niagara, Sunday mornings from 10 to 12. Just Google One Dish, One Mic, and you can check out the show. It's worth your time. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. Uh, you can check out a new episode of Oppo. It's a fall political preview. We're going to have a snap election. What's going to happen? Aaron who? Get up to speed. Check out the new Oppo. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. 
This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.